Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Ace Smith, who for a long time was one of the most well-known practitioners of political research, in-depth research into opponents, as well as understanding his own clients' vulnerabilities. From there, he managed races for candidates, including Jerry Brown, several states for Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primaries, and started the firm now known as Bear Star Strategies, one of the dominant California consulting firms, with clients including Kamala Harris, Jerry Brown, Gavin Newsom, among many others. Ace's story is one of being virtually born into democratic politics and becoming one of the most successful operatives of his generation. And it's great to talk to Ace Smith today. Ace Smith, can you tell me a bit how you grew up? Well, I grew up in a, luckily, in a political family. My next older brother is named Adlai, and we can guess that was Adlai Stevenson. My parents just loved him, big supporters of him in both his races. My actual name is not Ace. My name is Averill, and I was named after Averill Harriman, governor of New York and later ambassador, et cetera, et cetera. I got the name Ace for the very simple reason that there's no kid, say, under three years old who can say Averill. I can hardly say it today as an adult. And so I quickly just became Ace. Adlai Stevenson, Averill Harriman, who you mentioned, a Democrat as well. So not a coincidence, I take it. How does that come to be? Well, they were both huge Democrats. As a matter of fact, my mom used to joke that one of the first questions she asked my dad on the first date was, are you a Democrat? Was not going to go any further if he said Republican. My dad was also deeply involved in politics and state government in the days when some real legends were there. And it was just a most extraordinary man. Arlo Smith later became district attorney in San Francisco, but he literally got his start working for Pat Brown in the attorney general's office when every ambitious young person, that's where you started. And he was the only person in his family who went to college. He only went to college because he had the GI Bill had to sell many of his possessions just to get an apartment in San Francisco and work for Pat Brown, who was then the Attorney General of California. He rose in the ranks uh, steadily of the Attorney General's office uh, to the point where he was the head of a number of large divisions and argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Just a remarkable, remarkable life story. And can you talk a bit about Pat Brown? If people these days know about him, they often probably think of him most as the father of Jerry Brown, the more recent California governor. Sure, I can. Though a small kid when Pat Brown was governor, remember is just being a kind-hearted, really affable, brilliant man. What I remember very distinctly, and I was all of eight years old, was the 1966 election. I can remember like yesterday, the shockwaves that that sent through California politics. At the time, my father was working for Attorney General Tom Lynch, who was like Pat Brown before him, had been district attorney of San Francisco. He was the only Democrat who survived on that statewide ballot. Really a lesson that has stuck with me my whole life, even though I was a young kid, because I can still remember that campaign and how they ridiculed Reagan underestimated him because he came from Hollywood. Even though I was a kid, remember the ad they ran against him, really one of the early negative ads where they had someone offhandedly say, well, gee, wasn't it an actor who shot Lincoln, which of course backfired on them. The lesson I always took was never underestimate outsiders and people with different skills. And let's be honest, that was a lot of the mistake that Democrats as a party made with Donald Trump. They saw this man who was seemingly inarticulate, couldn't give a speech, oh my goodness, a reality TV show. Here was a guy like Reagan who really had honed an incredibly valuable skill and he realized the value of it and people in his party started to realize the value of it. But Democrats, even to this day, have underestimated what an outsider bringing new skills and understanding how to communicate to people in different new ways, what a challenge that is and, and how you can't just stick with the conventional wisdom. The wisdom on Reagan was that, my goodness, here was this guy, he was an actor. This guy didn't know how a bill passed. What did he know about the budget? But he just went out there and talked common sense. A funny Reagan story, though, later in life, I got to know a guy who was a young staffer on the Reagan campaign. And I asked him how they dealt with the whole issue of getting Reagan up to speed on you know just the basic workings of government because he couldn't be completely ignorant. So what they did is it was very brilliant, actually emulated it a few times. They found a retired 
state assemblyman who was in the weeds and knew how everything worked. And they literally just had him travel with Reagan to the point of standing next to him at the urinal, just kind of like spieling to him about, here's how a bill happens. And then it does this and that. And just for a month or two, to the point where when they had this huge press conference where the whole press corps closed in upon him and pounced, he actually probably knew this stuff in a technical sense, or at least in a facile sense, every bit as well as Pat Brown did. Pat Brown lost to, to Reagan in 66, and that was four years after he was riding high and defeated a different president, defeated Richard Nixon in 62, the famous, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore race. So, so Pat Brown, really an iconic figure of that era. But Ace, given the political lineage that you've talked about, and you're, you grew up in a political family, grew up in a Democratic family, is it safe to say you were always envisioning yourself working in politics? No, I was I was involved in politics from a young age just because I was fascinated by it. I was a volunteer on the George McGovern campaign, and I think it was all of 13 years old. It's something that really doesn't exist in a meaningful way. There was a political club movement. There were a lot of things to be active in. So I was always fascinated, interested. I ended up going to Berkeley and I took a few, maybe one or two courses in political science. And I was so disappointed that they had nothing to do whatsoever with what I had come to know as the reality of politics. Everyone wanted to argue about either pluralism or Marxism and had nothing to do. And I ended up because like I figured out they'd give me a degree for reading books. And so I, I got a degree in English lit. Kind of on the, that same same model of thinking in 19. 79, when my father ran for district attorney of San Francisco in a really turbulent race right after the assassination of uh, George Moscone and Harvey Milk, I took a quarter off Berkeley to work on his campaign. And I came to love politics and kind of like along the lines of they're going to give me a degree for reading books, like people will pay you to do something that's this much fun. I'm with it. And what memories do you have of Harvey Milk, the groundbreaking gay county supervisor in San Francisco, who was ultimately murdered, shot by a fellow council member, another victim being the sitting mayor, who I know you had family connections with as well, George Moscone. Uh, and Harvey Milk has been immortalized on the silver screen, played by Sean Penn. But you knew Harvey Milk. You saw him up close. Can you speak to the Harvey Milk that you knew? Another race that we were involved in was the 1976 Fred Harris for President campaign. He was Oklahoma senator. He was truly a populist, something that we need more of, but that's another story for another day. And I'll never forget this campaign. I was just a kid, so what I know about presidential campaigns, and this is how I met Harvey Milk. They were going around the country in a, this big RV, and maybe two RVs, camping at campsites to save money and rolling into cities. And so they, all the people who were his supporters, he rolled into the Golden Gate Bridge to do a big press thing. And all the supporters were there. And one of the people there was Harvey Milk, someone who my family had known, and he'd run for a supervisor once already. And I had this very long conversation with him. And at that time, he had hair almost halfway down his back. He explained to me, that he was going to run citywide for supervisor. And he, he was going to see the barber before he did that because he'd like to get some, some votes on the West side. It was this effusive, brilliant man, but who was also, you could see he had the sparkle in his eye of understanding politics. And he also had a determination. I mean, I tell people who get discouraged after losing one race. I mean, I think he lost two or three races before he ever won. He was never discouraged. My family became good friends with him and walked many precincts and his, he had another race for assembly he lost. Really devoted supporters of that man. A story that really no one really knows is, so leading up to the 1979 district attorney's race, there's, there's a man who's district attorney of San Francisco, his name is Joe Freitas. He had done a number of, before anything happened with assassination, number of major missteps, and he had really stepped on the toes of the board of supervisors and the mayor. My father was going to run, and he had he had actually secured the endorsement of George Moscone and Harvey Milk. And then, of course, Dan White assassinates them. What eventually happens is the DA then has the job of prosecuting Dan White, who's assassinated them. Dan White, a fellow uh, supervisor, right? Yes, a fellow supervisor. He completely flips is the very famous Twinkie defense and uh, he gets off scot-free and a number of the communities in the city were just outraged, but especially in the LGBTQ community is just besides themselves. And he probably would have had one opponent, my father, if that hadn't happened, but there was like a full slate. 
And the other thing to to kind of that's kind of interesting about those times to reflect upon, and and this actually is relevant today. People ask why do many of the politicians, successful ones, coming out of Northern California, especially San Francisco, even though the population, a lot of the populations down south, there's a number of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is if you make it in San Francisco politics, it's kind of like if you play in the Dominican leagues, if you play baseball and you hit the major leagues, you might actually think it's easier. And in those days, what it meant was on any given night, you'd probably have to be at three or four different forums, many of which were debates. You had to be on live TV and live radio all the time. People would be giving radio interviews and the other campaigns would be throwing hardballs at, you know, at them by calling in questions. It was really a raucous, tough environment. You had two major newspapers and three or four other ones that were just reporting almost day by day. So it was almost like a mini presidential race. Freitas got into that thing, the incumbent DA, and just got grilled. He eventually, and I've never seen this, I had never seen this happen. I've seen that, you know, in the days of the internet, it certainly happens, but I had never seen this happen that he, we put so much pressure on him that he held a press conference or he attacked the press with obscenities. And they were so incensed, they actually printed the obscenities, which was a big deal in those days. Ultimately, that we were able to beat him. As you're cutting your teeth in California, do you look back? Is there one race where you really look back on and say that's where you really coming into your own as a political operator? Tell you the truth, there's many, many races that, and I'm a huge believer in this really judgeship races, small time races. I got to tell you the truth, you a lot of times you learn more in these small races, these city council races, these judge races. I can't even think of them all through my mind these days, but legislative races, because you're not a huge focus, you really, all the energy you create for the campaign, you have to create yourself. The cavalry is never coming. I'm starting. A a campaign manager was responsible for everything from the, literally the fundraising, scheduling, the advance, hanging signs to, I mean, you name it. I mean, you're responsible for everything. And so learning every job on the shop floor was really, and, and so it really wasn't any one particular race. It was just, it was accumulation of a lot of uh, small races in really, in a really hot political cauldron. I owe a lot of uh, the skills I have today to. And you clearly had a good thing going in California, it sounds like. What made you look to the horizon and really almost start from scratch by getting out of California? And I believe you go to D.C., Well, you learn, I mean, one of the things you know about this country is news and politics and many things flow east-west. They don't flow west-east. And so if you don't get into the current, you essentially don't exist. I had wanted to meet all the people who who did these big races and and, uh, get involved in a larger scale. And so literally got on a plane in late 88 with no idea what I was doing like talk to everyone I knew who knew someone and just went and met with them all. And one of the one of the lucky introductions was uh, someone introduced me to this guy named Rahm Emanuel, who was then the political director at the DCCC in late 1987, going into the 88 cycle. What I realized was that coming out of California, essentially, I was almost like a kid who wanted to see the rest of the world. And I knew I was never going to see the rest of the world if I just stayed in California. My shtick and my pitch is because I couldn't just come back and say, I run campaigns better than you guys or anything like that. A, it's probably not true. And B, people who who have experience running campaigns are a dime a dozen. So I need to come up with a little bit of a unique pitch. And one of the things, many things that I used to be in charge of and I became quite good at was, it wasn't even called this then, was uh, opposition research. I, I think we just called it research in those days. There was no one doing it. And my pitch to Rom was, hey, you know, I, I think I have a real value add. I think I'm better at this stuff than anyone around. Why don't you give me a race to see if you like me? And so he assigns me a race down in Florida, which I think was one of their top races uh, down in West Palm Beach. And I come back to him with my research, and I think he was able to more or less cross it off his list of worries and went on to work with him. I forget how many dozen more races. Can you give a little context on that Florida race? What do you what do you remember about the candidates involved there? And there must have been something striking in what you uncovered to, to let the DCCC cross it off their list. Our opponent had two huge flaws. Uh, flaw number one, he had the guy had hardly ever voted in an election going all the way back to Eisenhower which is underestimated tremendously is like people just don't take you seriously. You know, you say you're going to represent us in Congress. You didn't vote, you know, 50 straight congressional elections or whatever it was. 
and his other fundamental problem was his claims about his great resume didn't hold up so beautifully under scrutiny. And do you remember who the Democratic candidate was in that? I guess it was a Democratic incumbent? No, it was an open seat. A guy named Harry Johnston, who was the, uh, the state Senate president. And I think he held that seat three or four cycles. Uh, just a, a wonderful man. They ran a great race, had a really good candidate against a, a real neophyte. And you, you talk about this close connection you developed with Rahm Emanuel starting in that meeting in late 1987. What can you offer about what you know about Rahm Emanuel that maybe the rest of us who just observed him from afar don't uh, realize? Rahm is, is a truly brilliant, but the one thing always struck me about him, maybe more than anyone else I ever met, he could have, and he would have, 500 balls in the air at any given time, and he would know exactly where every one of those balls was at any given time. You could wake him up four in the morning and he could tell you that kind of a mind. And plus also he has tremendously brilliant political instincts. What characteristics, what type of person is the right fit to really sink your teeth into the world of political research? Well, that's a great question. And you know, I'll give you an answer you're probably not expecting, which is People think of as the researchers as being kind of like closed off nerds who, who are just in the library all day. That is actually not a formula for success. To truly be a good researcher, you have to have a grounding in understanding politics and campaigns because otherwise just ask yourself a very simple question. You're looking at a massive material. How the hell are you going to know what's worthwhile and what's not unless you've actually been in a lot of these campaigns and understand what works, what doesn't work? in your field, knows what pulls, what doesn't pull, how to make an argument. So if you don't have the ability to understand what you're seeing, you won't be good at research, even though you might be super good at academic research. You won't be good at political research. And I give you a couple of examples of that. So think of it this way. The Wheeler decision, which brings abortion into play in politics in a, in a much larger way than it was, happens, I want to say, by memory in 1989. So when you were looking at everyone's record, a lot of times people had taken positions on that issue. You know, and remember, if you're researching someone in 1990, they usually probably have a record that goes back to 1970 or so. But there's a lot of really obscure and hidden things where people took votes on resolutions or other things that are very hidden. But if you didn't know the value of that, you wouldn't have gone to look for it. And it wouldn't be in a newspaper clip. It may have been, it was usually a lot of times hidden in some resolution that someone voted on that didn't even think about because they didn't think it was significant at the time. That's just a simple example. Now, how has research changed? That's also a really interesting question, which is back when I started doing it, a lot of times the challenge was how the heck do I get enough material to really look at, you know, so you would, you, you would have to go into the newspaper morgues, get everything you can get your hands on. This is a lot of times even pre-database, go through old libraries. My goodness, it was a, it was a different world, but it, it was almost like you had to accumulate enough material to set your eyes on so you would get a full picture, but the accumulation was the hard part. These days, if anything, it's kind of gone from, instead of having a dearth of information, having a deluge of information. The challenge is, how do you look through this mass of information that lives on the internet and actually find the things that are worthwhile? Because it's very easy to create research that has a lot of content, but is it useful? And the other thing that's changed, it's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating thing too, is it used to be if something had been in the newspaper previously, if it had been reported, right? It was useful politically if it was something, say, like the abortion issue I was telling you about. But if it was talking about something that, say, involved someone's conduct or ethics, et cetera, et cetera, if it had been, you know, it was kind of like people were like, ah, that was already reported. Today, the standard is not that. The standard is, is it on the internet? So ironically, if it's pre-internet, it's actually valuable because it's almost like even though it's super old information, it's new information. What leads you to entering the Clinton world in the 92 election? Oh, well, that's Rahm Emanuel. He was the person who did that. The, the race I really probably uh, cemented my relationship with him on was the daily race, the Chicago Rangers race in 1989. I went back to Chicago and the other person I met there and still just a someone of huge admiration for and still talk to quite frequently is David Axelrod uh, from that race. But I won't ever forget, I'm this kid from San Francisco and I'm I fly into O'Hare. I'm trying to get a sense of what this thing's like. And I start talking to the taxi cab driver and he is telling me in the greatest detail you could ever imagine some 
complaint he has about some permit that's been issued on some liquor store 10 blocks away from him in his aldermanic district and how the alderman did XYZ. And I was like, wow, this is very much like San Francisco. This is a place where not only is is politics a contact sport, but you have a deep knowledge base. That may be the other thing that has changed just really dramatically. And we don't necessarily account for this, but profoundly impacts politics. Every city every locality, every state, the news was essentially driven by local newspapers. So what was in the Tribune or the Sun-Times is what actually drove what was on TV that night. All the TV stations had political reporters. It drove what was on radio. It drove what happened in you know for the next few days. So if you think about people as having kind of like static pyramids of information, bottom of the pyramid with the most information that people had was really local and state. And then up on top was the national and international. And actually, you remember, there's a reason why we didn't have a Democratic nominee who was a U.S. senator for like 100 years or something, because it was like, if you went to D.C., you were almost hidden away. That used to produce these races in all these cities, and Chicago Mayor's Race being a classic one, where you have this incredibly knowledgeable electorate, passionate electorate, and seeing these races having huge stakes. But what's happened is the dailies have really almost gone defunct. I know they exist, but they but and they really don't drive news. And so if you think of people's news pyramids now, they're really like the bottom of the news pyramid where there's the most information is national and international. People know a hell of a lot more about what's going on in DC, even their Congress people and their senators and even the international scene, then they know any more of what's going on in state or local politics. And that has been just a huge shift. So when even when you go into a place like Chicago or San Francisco anymore, you'd be really stunned when you have your taxi cab ride or rarely find the level of knowledge or passion that used to exist in these races. The maxim of all politics being local seems less apt, certainly than it well, used less, to. I think it's 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 I, I think if you were gonna assign an aphorism, quite the opposite is true, which is all politics are national. We we on the recall race here, we took a lot of heat from insiders for using Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, President Obama in our ads. You know, why aren't we using local people? And it's like there's a simple truth. Like people know these people. That's where their knowledge base is. And in that 92 race, was it as simple as you were keeper or one of the keepers of the Bill Clinton self-research book? No, I did some that that race, I, I did some stuff early on. And then, of course, any presidential race set the whole thing up internally. So I, I did some stuff early on. I didn't have a real significant role. I did, however, have the great honor of meeting the Clintons at that time. And I came to know them much better when I hit the 2008 race and I was running California, Texas, North Carolina. And I've heard you say before, and I assume it would have been in this era, that you had a very memorable first meeting with then-Governor Clinton. Can you tell me about that meeting, the sense you got from then-Governor Clinton and what must have been, what, 91? Yeah, I mean, the sense you get from him anytime you meet him is you get, you know, A, from the, aside from the personal magnetism, you just understand that you're talking to someone who has a incredibly deep, brilliant mind, and he's not missing anything. And most people you know, maybe are good on politics, but not so good on policy. Uh, but here's a guy who was really the whole package. I came to probably appreciate him more and even know him more in 2008 primaries. I had this uh, funny little history with him, which is I do California. And I kind of got to know him there, but then I'm doing Texas. This is after, you probably remember after South Carolina. I'm not sure that all the other states were clamoring to get him. I was like, I'll take you all I can get you. He was really great because I needed him. Actually, so so Texas has a an early vote, just like California, but it's not, you know, I don't know what it is today, but at the time, it was not an early vote by mail. They had some of that. It was really an in-person early vote. And they had these this great series where they would, which really inspired me, where they would set these mobile voting sites, usually out front of a Walmart or something. It, it depended from county to county, but, but they would have these sites where you could just go. And so what we decided to do was just send him to an appearance in close proximity, draw a big old crowd of people and just have them all vote. I kind of talked them in doing this and you know, advanced, I love advanced people, but advanced people are like, they always want to build stuff. I'm just like, no, we need to be this real simple. So the first time he shows up, talk him into doing, having back of a pickup truck, they have like a, like a walnut podium in the back of a pickup truck. 
And I'm, I'm like, okay, so do me a favor at the next stop at the Walnut Podium. Why don't you bring him a glass of Chardonnay? So we dumped the Walnut Podium, got bales of hay, really bad sound systems even. I, I thought that kind of like the more low tech, the better. He would draw crowds of 1,000, 2,000 people, and they were all about. I went and did the math after the race. I'm convinced that he probably got us somewhere around, and he did dozens of these probably created, and I know you can, you know, close race, you can point to many things as being the margin, but, but that is one of the things that you, you can almost tote it up, see that as the margin for what happened in that Texas race. And this was something I noticed about his skills. It's a lost art. It will be a lost art forever. In North Carolina, in Texas, I was really, I wasn't able to travel as much. In North Carolina, I did a lot more traveling. So I had a few days I spent with him the entire day. And it was fascinating to watch his technique on, on giving speeches. What he would do is he would sit down in the morning and he would take one of his big eight and a half by 14 yellow pads and he'd kind of write out his, in outline form, his speech. It wasn't word for word, but just kind of the argument he was making and points he was going to make, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it would usually fit on one or two sheets. And he, he has a brilliant memory, so he would kind of memorize that. But then what he did that I've never seen anyone do before. So we'd start, we had one day we started like 7.30 in the morning. He started and then he would watch the crowd and you could see him. He was like a human focus group, a one person focus group. He would pick up on all the stuff that was working, all the stuff that didn't work. And by the second event, he had fine-tuned it a little bit more. By the third event, it was even better. And when you got to the, the 10th event at the end of the night, which was usually our biggest event, and in this case, it was in Asheville. It's a huge auditorium. Man, he had this thing humming. Every applause line had been made better. Applause lines were added. Is I've never seen anything like that in my life. A person who could edit, uh, you know, like, like almost take in input as he was giving output. That is a unique gift. And what can you offer about Hillary Clinton? You, you've certainly been around her just as long as Bill Clinton. You worked for her. We've been talking about the 2008 race. What can yep. you offer about Hillary Clinton that maybe the rest of us don't know or appreciate? Also truly a brilliant person, but also just a truly sweet soul. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny with her. My California experience was, was odd in the sense that I was hired to do California really as a, it was like the ultimate backstop. I mean, Races didn't get past you know Iowa and New Hampshire like in some kind of like some sort of insurance and so to some degree or another which was wonderful for me because to some degree or another like the campaign was just like go do whatever the crazy stuff you do don't want to want to know about it and so I was really able to kind of do my own thing out here and approach things in a very California style which is very different than politics in the rest of the country for a lot of reasons but the first time I ever met her I'll never forget I took my daughter with me uh, and <laughs> she. She was incredibly sweet to her, and uh, she bent down and talked to Lily, and Lily said, hey, you don't have anything to worry about. My dad's running your race. Don't sweat it. Just a, a sweet soul. She was, a, she was also, I, I've never, I don't think I've hardly ever seen anyone who had a uh, truly photographic memory. I remember showing her memos, you know, before we were doing events, and she would have you know this whole list of names and people and i swear she would she'd get up and just do it like without without breaking a sweat with hardly looking at her notes truly remarkable and and i you know one of the great tragedies in, in our history was her defeat by a truly awful man talking about 2016 yeah fast forwarding to 2016 28 i mean a, a great person won the presidency you managed several states for hillary clinton you've run races in california you managed yourself in certain over the years worked with dozens, maybe hundreds of managers. From what you've seen, do you have best practices, thoughts on what separates the really good campaign manager from the rest of the pack? Well, that's a that's a great question. And and I, I think that the best campaign managers I've worked with are are, and I think I alluded to this before, are people who've done the all the jobs on the factory floor. If you've done that then you have the ability to understand what should be and also understand where you're failing. But more importantly, it's not the where you're fa failing, but it's why you're failing. If you've done all of those things or, or many of them, you will be a much more effective manager. The other thing I think I'm a big advocate of people who've done communications because that is very often where you win or lose races. I mean, I listen, I, I would say that probably the the two best manager campaigns I've ever seen in my lifetime were the two biggest failures. Uh, the 
1988 Michael Dukakis race from a management standpoint, making the trains run on time, having the tape down in the right spot every time at the, the podium, rolling out, you know, have all the, the stuff that was getting rolled out, all they, everyone had done their homework and everything, you know, but just missed the bigger mark, which is what are you saying? Why are you saying? It? I always say that campaigns are they're successful are campaigns that can wake up every day and answer two questions without blinking. What are we doing and why are we doing it? If you can't answer those two questions every day you wake up, you are off the rails. Your campaign is like some composite thing that maybe you get lucky enough to win with, but will never fly straight. Uh, it, it truly never will. I guess I'm not as huge a fan of the, what I might call the trains run on time management as I am on people who obviously can do that because that's one of the jobs, but also people who have an insight into how campaigns are won, why they're won. Campaigns are tricky because no matter what the situation, you're always playing a little bit of a game of triage and you're never going to do everything perfectly. But the more perfect you are and the things are important and the less perfect you are and the things are not important, probably the better campaign you're running. Yeah, well, that's great insight into winning races and you and your firm, Bear Star Strategies, are at the top of California politics because you've won a lot of races. Your clients include names like Kamala Harris, Jerry Brown, Gavin Newsom, Katie Porter, among many, many others. And I do want to talk about Bear Star. But before we get there, and you've already been generous with this to some degree, but can you give me the Ace Smith 101 of California politics? Fundamentally, what do people need to start thinking about to understand what's different about California, how California politics operate? I'm not sure that the politics itself operates so differently than if you came here from the Rhode Island legislature and stepped into the California legislature, you probably wouldn't see that many, that much of a difference. The campaigns operate fundamentally differently because you have this essential problem that you don't have in almost everywhere else in the country. So think of think of campaigns, and, and this is and, and just for preface, I'll say you know we've between us we've worked on campaigns in forty nine of the fifty states, and so have a deep knowledge of how campaigns work outside California as well. But to some degree, or another, I'm oversimplifying it to make a point. But some degree or another, if you're doing a campaign in a smaller state, you ha- you're looking at the menu, you can pretty much order everything on the menu. Give me this, give me all that field, give me all that media, give me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Give me all the research, all, all the things. California, you never have that luxury. You're always, California is a lot more like a, a civil war hospital and you're making really tough triage decisions. The people I see fail all the time are people who come into the state and think that they're that they can do everything, that they can run a robust field campaign, robust digital campaign, run a robust uh, traditional media campaign, et cetera, et cetera. We can go through all the categories, but what happens is the peanut butter gets spread too thin, and you never and you'll never break through. You are always, always stuck with the reality of making incredibly hard decisions. And and let me just give you a, a just a classic example. So it's not just theoretical. 2010 Attorney General's race, Kamala Harris is our candidate. We're running against uh, the LADA. He's a Republican, but he's a moderate Republican named Steve Cooley. He actually has, because people don't think we have a chance to win, he has about maybe a million to $2 million more than we do. We kind of realized this campaign that We'll have an advantage in Northern California, but that we won't win unless we really like turn around the numbers in LA County. And so what happens in the course of the campaign is he has this horrible, horrible flub at the one debate. And I won't bore you with the details other than what he says is just like it's a Southern California thing. It's just, it's out of his own mouth. It's just, it could not, like I couldn't make it up. Just devastating. And this speaks highly of Vice President Harris. I go to her and I say, look, here's what we're going to have to do. And a lot of people are going to complain at you. We're going to have to not do anything in North California, media-wise. We're going to have to actually cut a whole bunch of stuff from the budgets. It's going to make a lot of people unhappy. And we're going to have to take all of our chips and put it on this one spot that's going to run in the LA media market for the last, I think it was three weeks. And she agreed. She she's a she really is a gutsy gutsy person, and that's what won us that race. But again, so it's you're always you're always looking at these really tough hard decisions where, where a lot of times you have to almost like a you have to go all in on on one thing, and 
leave a, a lot of stuff, other stuff uh, to the side. And what are the voting blocks you think of? What are the pieces of the electorate, you know, balancing out geography, ideology, uh, race, ethnicity? Let me ask it this way. When you get a poll out of the field in California, what set of crosstabs, what's the first page that you turn to first to really understand what's happening? Well, that's a great question. These days, races are won in the Democratic primary. Republicans are, I, I don't know the next time they'll be competitive, maybe 20 years from now in this state. So the whole ball game, it's almost like a, it's almost like the New York mayor's race, right? The whole ball game is in the primary. There's a reason why Northern Californians, despite the disparity in, in population, are so successful, which is if you can come out of the San Francisco Bay Area with a base and you run an effective campaign, you have the potential to run up margins anywhere from 60 to 80% in all these huge populous counties also going up the I-80 corridor for a lot of historical reasons and other reasons. LA just never, in the Southern California counties, never, they just never condense like that. And so like the best margins you're ever going to get, except in extraordinary circumstances, but in a competitive race, or maybe you can get to high 50s, even low 60s. And then the other thing is that people, folks in Northern California do a much better job of turning out in primary elections than they do in Southern California. And then throw into this as well, the fact that independent voters really don't show up very much in primaries. What's the cross tab what do you look at? You look at how you consolidate your base in Northern California in a way that will let you essentially run the table and then almost like break even elsewhere. Now, I've had some cases where I've had to reverse engineer that. I didn't have that. And really the way you reverse engineer it is you you can have to find some groups to run up like crazy and then kind of break even the Bay Area, which was really Hillary Clinton formula in the 2008 primary, which was kind of reversed. But you you have to, it's a geographic thing and you have to, if you don't understand the how the geographies play off each other and, and how many votes you can get and, and what you need to do to get a win out of that, you will fail every time. And can you talk to me about the rise of Bear Star Strategies or what is now known as Bear Star Strategies? Yeah, how and when it started and, and what's the path to becoming such a dominant force in California politics and beyond. Well, I mean, Bear Star Strategies, in some incarnation or not, has been it originally started as the research group in 1989. You know, and then we morphed into other things. And to really, the, I mean, the story is again. I'd like to tell you there's some sort of a brilliant business plan we put on a paper somewhere, and, and we executed it. And weren't we smart? No, nope, that's not the way it happened. It was really a, a bunch of different people me included, who had kind of like, I went off after I stopped doing research to run campaigns. And so, you know, kept the company around, but really that was my passion. And I did a whole bunch of campaigns. The other folks also kind of went off on their hippie journey years. And then in 2009, the bunch of us said, oh, let's get the band back together. This would be fun. And the difference was we also decided that we wanted to do our own media because we we had been working with enough folks and realized that the back ends to a lot of the biggest ad agencies were writing our own backyard and they loved working with us on political ads. And this is transitioning from a more of a general consultant type model? Yeah, general consultant to, well, to we, we really do strategy slash media, definitely different than the DC model. And California campaigns have always been different than the DC model. And um, and the DC model being very, uh, very much niche based and you have the media consultant versus the male consultant versus yeah. everybody has a very narrow lane. It, it's more of a committee structure. And and, and listen, I, I'm not going to disparage it. It works incredibly well. It's just a different system. 2009, current uh, incarnation of, of, of what we now know as Bear Star starts to take shape. So yeah, and so then we do a bunch of, we do, you know, we do Gavin Newsom's race for lieutenant governor. We do this San Francisco DA's race who everyone said, you're crazy, you're wasting your time. There's no way you could ever elect an African-American woman, liberal woman from San Francisco is the top cop in California. You're crazy. Uh, we win that race. And I think we turned a lot of heads and, and started uh, and then just built upon that success. And And also, I think that the media we do, I think is is really exceptional and, and maybe different than some of the stuff you see out there. And, and our fundamental belief is that, I mean, we have two, there's two things that happen when you do media in California, which is you never have the luxury of missing the bullseye. It is so expensive that you can't, you can never run a spot. And this is something as a pollster you will appreciate. You, you can't run something that is like 
three-star, four-star. You better be running five-star stuff because to buy a thousand points statewide is such an enormous amount of money. Well, California, you get what, one or two bites at the apple in terms of communicating on television versus cheaper states. Maybe it's 10, 15, 20 uh, ads that that burn in over the course of a campaign. So we're, we're adamant about two things. We're adamant about testing the hell out of our spots before we air them to make sure that they, they actually work. And there's folks like you who do a brilliant job of doing that. Uh, increasingly, we're also finding that YouTube has some really great tools for doing that that you're probably aware of. Just adamant about that. And we're also adamant that the, that the material you put up is not, just, is not competing against other political sponsors, complete, competing against Coca-Cola and BMW and Ford and, and all that. So it actually, to be memorable, it needs to be memorable, but it also needs to be well-produced. Let me ask about a couple of just the clients that, that we've touched on a little bit. Uh, just how unique of a character of a political figure is Jerry Brown? <laughs> he is. He is like... He is one of the most wonderful people you ever meet. He's, uh, but he's also, he's a man with a absolutely brilliant, but tremendously chaotic mind, which is something I say is a high compliment uh, because uh, I, I like people who aren't straight logicians. So like, there's nothing, nothing better than having a long conversation with him because you may start talking about California politics in the 1940s. And before you know it, you're talking about Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And before you know it, you're talking about Camus. So it's like there's something tremendously refreshing and wide ranging about that man. It's funny, voters, you know, one of the things I learned over my life doing this stuff was when I was young and full of hubris, I used to always believe that you wanted to take your candidates and make them into some sort of a perfect John Kennedy Robert Redford type thing. And then as I got older, I realized that, no, that's not your job at all. Your job is to figure out what your candidate's strengths are and what their weaknesses are and find ways to play to their strengths uh, and use them to your advantage and play down their weaknesses. And Jerry is just a perfect example of that because here's a, uh, like a, you know, guy who's just, again, never going to be on a linear thought pattern, but he'll also talk about things and say things that other people won't say. People find it incredibly refreshing. He's also, you know, the, the other thing to know about him, you talk about someone with a, a repository. I'll never forget when I was doing his attorney general's race, I had read through all of his veto messages, trying to get a sense of what they were going to attack him on. And he was like, oh, Ace, you don't need to do that. I was like, okay, fine. And so I tested him on a few of them. I like named the bill and he like literally told me the content of them and why he had done them. And well, and this had been like 20 some years earlier or something. And I don't know how many he'd probably written hundreds of these things. Uh, you know, so just uh, you're t- and he's also he's the only person I've ever worked for who when we'd have disagreements about political strategy, we would go into Roman or Greek history and uh, kind of argue out the point. And you were deeply involved in the campaign against the attempted recall of Governor Gavin Newsom. The margin against the recall was almost identical to the Newsom margin in his 2018 election. So some could assume it was just always a cakewalk. But what is your take from the inside? Did you ever feel like your guy was on the ropes? What did you have to do to bring it home? What should people know about that effort against the recent recall against Gavin Newsom? I think the main thing to know about it was he went through the up and down cycle that everyone's gone through, which was that people have gone through COVID and they hit the summer and it was almost like the war had ended. And there was this huge outpouring of positive, optimistic, you know, belief that we were, everything was back. And then of course the Delta virus variant hit and people were super bummed. And so were there some moments where people were, where, where things were a little bit creaky? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and listen, there, there were two ways he could have dealt with that. And, and I really do. It's, it's one of the things when you run up a big margin, people always think it's easy. It would have been very easy to, to run up a small margin or to have lost this race just as easy. And really, the, the defining moment in that race is in August. The Delta variant is growing. People are more and more, just because of what they're living through, unhappy with everything, including him. And he really steps up and he decides to go really hard on vaccination mandates 
for a lot of categories of health workers and other folks. And that was one of those cases where the people on the other side were just embracing this Trump belief that that was all bad, where we're really, we really kind of took the good he did, which also happened to be a political good, and really shaped the race with it. And say, if you want to head California the way of Florida, here's your people, knock yourself out, go vote for them. If you want someone who's going to actually put public health and your and your safety to the forefront, you know, here's your person. I mean, how do you mess up a recall? Recalls can very easily and most kind of, I think, naturally almost default to a referendum on your person. If you ever let those sort of things, and there's other races and recalls too, if you let these things become a referendum rather than a choice, that's where you get killed. We went out and we made it a choice. And I should say, you and I are talking shortly after the November 2021 elections with Republicans winning in Virginia, coming very close to an upset in New Jersey. Given this political climate, it makes what the anti-recall effort did earlier this year appear even more impressive. Yeah, and I would actually encourage people to listen to a previous episode I had with Mike Murphy, who was very involved in the last successful recall of a California governor, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in the in the early aughts. The Kamala Harris stories had a very happy ending in terms of 2020, making history as first uh, woman to be vice president, first person of color to be vice president. But you were deeply involved in her presidential campaign with hindsight now of well over a year, you know, closer to a couple of years of hindsight. Is there something you'd want to do differently, something within the control of the campaign? Most things in campaigns are outside of your control, but is there something you look back on now with hindsight that you'd want another chance, something to do a little differently? You know, that's just not the way these things work. So, you know, anytime you run a presidential campaign, right, there's been, you know, just a few people ever who've become president of the United States. And for that number of people, add like five zeros to the to the number of people who've run. The odds of getting elected president of the United States, even, even the best circumstances, are incredibly low. If you go into that process and you come out, and it's always messy, but you come out the other end and you're vice president of the United States, that's a hell of a good result. So uh, n- no apologies, no, no postmortems uh, on any of that. It's uh, this is a uh, this is someone who we're going to hear from for a long time. Uh, well, it's just a couple more questions about how you've approached the business and the success of of Bear Star uh, over the years. And this this certainly can predate Bear Star as well. But over the years, you've hired really talented people. What have you learned about building a team? finding the right people in this business? Maybe the main thing I've learned is that if you have really smart, enthusiastic, motivated people who can deal with a lot of times very tough circumstances, they'll succeed. You just need to give them the tools to succeed. There's nothing I enjoy more than bringing young people in the business and letting them go out and learn. And you know this, you can't learn this stuff in a course. You can't learn this stuff by reading books. Honestly, and, and what's painful is, you're frankly going to probably, a lot of the things that you learn are going to come from mistakes that you've made that have impacts on, on things. But, but th- there's no other way to learn this business than to do it. And so giving young people opportunity to learn and to grow. I, I also, I always tell the young people who work for us, I'm going to look over your shoulder. I'm going to make sure that you do as well as you can, but you're you're going to make a bunch of mistakes. And that's honestly, that, that's really, and we'll try and catch them before they happen, but that's the only way you're going to learn. And you've been at the very elite level of operative strategist for years now. There's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people who work hard. But Ace, what do you think has made you different? What's unique about you that you've been able to be so successful in what you've done in politics? Oh, I'm not sure I'm so unique. I think I've been very lucky, been lucky not just to be at the right place at the right time about a lot of things. I've been very lucky to have really learned from a lot of others uh, who came before me and to very lucky that a lot of people have in the candidates have, have really trusted their careers to me. I, you know, if I was going to point to one thing, it would just be the, I mean, it's not just me, but everyone who works at Bearstar, we're, we're relentless at always digging down to the bottom levels of everything and, and understanding what's at the basis. Take your business, polling. I think one of the most misunderstood things about polling is that it's some sort of a scientific process. It's no more scientific than painting a canvas. There's science used in the product, but the outcome is artistic. And I don't think that politics is a science. With all due respect to 
all, all the academic institutions. I, I think it's a, I think it's an art. And I think that going back to polling, for instance, really good polls are polls that test really smart hunches. The smart hunches are based upon a lot of deep experience, but are also based upon always doing your homework, uh, always doing due diligence, understanding everything there is about your candidate, about your opponent, understanding issues that have been, but issues that may be emerging that aren't on other people's radar screens, understanding the larger context that you're running in historically. So a lot of things. So I would say if anything, not just me, but all the people I've been fortunate enough to work with, probably what distinguishes us is our relentlessness and always digging the next few layers deeper and never just being satisfied with easy answers. And is there a work habit, something very simple or practical, a work habit that you have that's maybe a little different than maybe other people would think is a little unconventional, a little odd, a little weird, that's a little different, but that works for you? Yeah, I'm a really, a very quick reader. A lot of times when I'll take on a race, I'll, I'll just I'll read 10, 20,000 pages just to really just to understand everything. And like every clip there is, every, every little piece uh, there is on something. And, and that's just, that's just my, that's my one dog trick in life. Well, Ace, let's end on this. As someone who spent most of his life in the Bay Area, can you give me the Ace Smith agenda for people with a few days to spend uh, in the Bay Area? What do you feel has to be on the agenda to get the best of what the Bay Area has to offer? That's a great question. I mean, you, you have to go to wine country, whether it's Sonoma or Napa. I spent some time up there. You almost can't go wrong. I'm not going to give any specific recommendations. You have to go to Oakland. It is truly the Brooklyn of the Bay Area. There, there are more exciting things going on there than almost anywhere. In San Francisco, don't just stay in all the tourist areas, but actually get out in the neighborhoods. There's wonderful things happening. Uh, the further you go out in, in the Mission District, you know, so don't don't stay. And and if you're coming here, bring your hiking boots and make your way to Marin County, to South Bay and, and hike Mount Ham, hike Mount Diablo, really take advantage of all the natural beauty. And is there a political landmark, anything that, that a political junkie should make a pilgrimage to? Harvey Milk's camera shop, I think, is there. I mean, there's stuff all over the place that you'll just come across in, in the city. Believe me, I had a lot of other questions we didn't talk about. Ann Richards or Doug Wilder, or many, many other people that I would have liked to have thrown uh, at you. We did cover, uh, we did cover Fred Harris. We did cover Albert Camus. So we did cover some ground uh, as well. But A. Smith, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. Thank you. Really, just honored. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.